I remember um, exactly one series from the church I grew up uh, going to in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I can remember the doxology at the end or the benediction at the end um, of my first church because it was beautiful and the same every week. Some of you wish I was a little more wired that way. Um, the one series from First United Methodist Church in Tulsa, downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a series on the disciples. And I remember it for a couple of reasons. One, the pastor would have these giant paintings of them, and they seemed to all be like near a sea, and their hair was being blown back, but it was fierce. It wasn't like a model picture. It was like um, some light and color, and I'm sure the, the paintings were famous. I don't remember him talking about it. But what I also liked about it was the 12 disciples always seemed important to me, and then we only know the story of a couple of them through the book of Acts and then through other sources we have like Fox's book of Christian martyrs and things like that. And so I enjoyed that series and it's to this day, the only one I can remember though. I learned a lot of good things like the books of the Bible and song and things like that. It's a good church. Um, visited it a few times as an adult. And Acts chapter 15 gives us a window, probably about 10 years into the story of the early church where a lot of the heroes are getting together. They have a council um, and some of you like think the councils of the church are silly. Others of you wish there were more councils. I kind of wish there were more. I don't want to go to more councils, but I do wish we had some more things figured out. Um, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I think like they got together and it was all pleasant and it was easy and they knew exactly how long to pray. And, and then they figured it out and they moved on and everybody smiled the whole meeting. And I don't, think that's actually how it went. Although in Acts chapter 15, there isn't a lot of direct contention. But what's going to happen is you're going to hear from James, and this is not the disciple James. He's actually, he was actually murdered um, earlier in the book of Acts. This is James the just. This is the one who wrote the book of James. This is the one who was the brother of Jesus. Um, you can read about him in, in Acts, in the book of Acts. And he's, he's for the most part, the rock of the Jerusalem church and was a wonderful bridge between uh, Jews who were not interested in following Jesus, Jews who were considering following Jesus at the time until he was martyred probably around 62 AD. Also, we have Peter. Um, Peter is the first generation, right, of the followers of the way. And then we have Paul entering the story. Uh, he's in the book of Acts before this, but this is when he sort of, well, the book of Acts becomes more about him than about Peter. And I kind of wonder if Peter and James ever sit around and Peter kind of pokes at James about that time that James said Jesus was crazy. That's in Mark chapter three happens twice. And then James is like, yeah, but you remember when you cussed out that teenage girl who just said that you were with Jesus and they're both laughing. These things happen, by the way, I'm not making this up, but they're laughing because they're like, and then he rose from the dead. And this is so exciting that we get to talk to people about this. I wonder if that ever happened. Perhaps in the kingdom, we'll find that out. But Acts chapter 15, they have some things to figure out because they don't have the New Testament. They're in the process of writing it. At this point, maybe one or two of the letters have been written, like First Thessalonians or something like that, but they're not something like that. We don't know how many of the letters are written at this point exactly, but they're forming the New Testament, but they don't know it's the New Testament. They have the Old Testament, they have the teachings of Jesus, and they have prayer and discussion with one another. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to read through Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to read a little bit fast because there's a lot of text. I'm going to stop and point out a few things, and there are going to be things that you are going to want to talk about more, and we're going to have some time. 
but I'm going to try and keep it to a sermon. I was lamenting to my wife this morning. I'd really like to do like two hours on this because if you take Galatians 2, where Paul talks about his own experience with what happens in Acts chapter 11 and with Acts chapter 15, that makes this really interesting. And you think I'm exaggerating a little because I love the Bible, but Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face. That's direct scripture. I'm not summarizing. I'm not paraphrasing. And I kind of wonder how he meant it. Was he like, I opposed Peter to his face. Or was it like, I opposed Peter to his face because he would not have listened otherwise. Or was it like, I opposed him to, I don't know. He's writing to a group of churches, but he's talking about this incident. Both what was going on in Acts chapter 11 and then again in Acts chapter 15. It's going to come up again in Acts chapter 21 also. So again, if you have your Bible, I'm in Acts chapter 15 and I'm going to read the entire chapter. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's challenging. That was what the first council was about, by the way. That's the title of sermon. That was what it was about. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, and I'm like, I would have liked to have heard some of that. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's the law. Why would we order them to keep the law? We have never been able to, and we know it doesn't save. That's what Paul's getting, or Peter is getting at. Picking up in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, this is James the Just, replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, so that's him calling Peter Simeon. So we have Simon and Peter and Simeon. I think this is proof that God is at least a little bit pro-nickname. So if you're like a nickname person, here it is in the scripture. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And if you wonder what that is about blood and strangulation, it's because of the cultures and the religions of the day. A lot of Jews wouldn't even go near those practices. So what the apostles are saying is, don't let these things get in the way of talking to the Jewish men and women about Jesus. So avoid them to guard their conscience. Does that make sense? I'll talk a little more about that in a few minutes. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's what prophets do. That's a good definition of prophecy. Those who can strengthen and encourage other followers of Christ. Sometimes it can mean other things, but this is a very robust definition. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But then Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the first counsel is, do followers of Jesus have to conform to the law of Moses? And the answer is no, they don't. Though the, the parts of the law still present to us God's standard, our own need for him, and they're a good guide, which is why James says twice, you do well to still follow, especially the moral law. One of the things that I wish about Acts chapter 15, and Andrew talked about, a little bit about this a few weeks ago when he preached, we just don't know how long they spent debating and how much scripture they looked at and how long they prayed and who got to talk when and whether they observed Robert's rules of order. And you, some of you are chuckling because you're familiar with Robert's rules of order. And I know that that probably doesn't bother most of you. But it's so interesting because the same questions that they were dealing with culturally, we deal with the heart of them. 
even though we agree easily about their conclusion, yes, we do not require when you join the church, when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to call him Lord of my life and savior. I'm going to follow him. Well, then you have to keep the 600 plus laws of the old Testament. We do believe that the moral laws, not the civic or the ceremonial, but the moral laws are a good guide. We do believe, and this is where he's saying flee sexual immorality. That's part of the moral law. So that part of their conclusion, we totally get. But our elders, you know, we study a little bit, both the scripture and we've used some books. We pray about decisions. We argue about them. There are always a couple of elders that would extend the discussion. There are always a couple of elders that believe we're near paralysis by analysis. There are always people that think we should have prayed about something more. There are always people that are like, haven't we made our mind up about this? I love praying, but why are we still praying about this? We know what we want to do. And Jesus left us attention as a church. Not a balancing act, attention to live in, which is that we have the Holy Spirit, though we do not always sense the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we have prayer and full access to him, that we have the scriptures. We have more resources than the early church did because we have the New Testament also. And yet it's not spelled out perfectly. Part of the, what they do at the first council is they celebrate what has happened. In our denomination, when we go to our regional meetings, almost every meeting that I've been to, and I, I think I've been to, let's see, I've been a pastor 15 or so years. There are three meetings a year. Let's pretend I go to all of them. That'd be 45. So I've probably been to 35 of these meetings. Every single time, people are so thankful that we spend some amount of time praying for one another, and we don't even know one another because we get to encourage each other about what God is doing in our church or in this town or in this region. One of the most encouraging things that's happening right now in our presbytery, in my opinion, is that all the churches in Pennsylvania and Virginia have sent us some money, Covenant Presbyterian Church and Christ Presbyterian Church in Springfield, to support the work of New England churches through an intern who will be starting next week. His name's Sam. Go ahead and make it awkward. Everybody introduce themselves to him the first Sunday that he's here next week. But I'm so encouraged by this. And it's very similar to the early church. We're listening to one another's stories. We're sharing the joy of men and women coming to faith in Jesus and what God is doing in our towns and in our churches. Then they spend some energy guarding one another's conscience. This is an important category for us. When they talk about not eating food sacrificed to idols, not eating things that have been strangled and watching out for blood, what they're doing is saying, guard the conscience of the Jewish men and women who cannot even approach that because of the ceremonial law that they follow. And you're like, I don't ever eat something that's been strangled. I don't think. I haven't really looked into that. Here's how it comes up for us. Differences in theology. When we discuss differences in theology, we need to guard one another's conscience. Whether we're talking about baptism or whether we're talking about God's pursuit of people, the words for that are predestination and election in the scriptures, whether we're talking about how old the earth is, whether we're talking about communion, what it is and is not, whether we're talking about how God defines sexual immorality, a question that comes up throughout the scriptures. We guard one another's conscience, whether we're talking about politics and we should talk about them and talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus 
and one who votes locally and nationally and thinks about those issues. And when we do so, we work hard to guard one another's conscience. Again, Andrew covered this very well a couple weeks ago when he preached, but I am as fond, maybe not quite as fond, but pretty darn fond of our denominations push that on the essentials we're strong and on the non-essentials we are charitable. What are the essentials? Well, you can find them on the website. They're about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and how we engage these other things. We need to be respectful in our disagreement with one another. It's called guarding one another's conscience. This is why the role of elders is so important. You notice them mentioned multiple times. We have these things to figure out. What does it mean to be a Christian in July, in Simsbury, in 2018? The truth of the gospel does not change, but what it looks like to be Christian in the culture changes constantly. The truths do not change. The promises and the commands of scripture don't change at all. But what will distract people, what will harm their conscience is different. It's part of the importance of the role of elder. That's part of the importance of having a region. It's called a presbytery. It's part of the importance of having a general assembly. We're constantly reworking papers that most of you are never going to read about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in 2018? If you want to research that, go to our denominations website, explore. And what, what we're doing is the same thing that the church was doing in Acts chapter 15 that Peter spoke about and Paul spoke about. And then James led on seems pretty clear. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church and of this specific council, which is grace in action. We believe that we're saved by the grace of Jesus. And that's what grows us up. What does it look like in action? There is also an inherent racial component to this. Did you notice when Peter was talking about it, that it sounds like, because I believe this is what he's doing, that he's reminding himself because he grew up like every human challenged by the differences between the races around him. Specifically for him, that would be the difference between a Roman and a Greek and especially a Jew and a Gentile. And the way that he would, that, that his natural self would think is that differences are not good. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know how directly God intervened with that mindset with Peter. And Peter relates it here. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. As I watch all sorts of discussions about race, I'm reminded that throughout the scriptures, God presses his people that all men and women are made in his image. Every man and woman is equal. Every man and woman is loved by God. And the reason that from Genesis to Revelation, we have to be reminded of that is that is not our natural sense. There is not a country in the world that has evolved past this. There is not an educational system in the world that has fixed this. You know why? Because an educational system which does fix racism then learns to hate those 
who still struggle with it. And what's the Christian's role? To love everyone. Remember that poster of the kids with the different skins and it said none of them were, none of these kids are racist at that point? That's true. And if you follow that line of reasoning, they will grow up without at least as much racism and when they encounter racists, they will not know how to love them. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's pursuit of his people is about all nations and all people and all races, knowing that they're loved by the Father. And regardless of whether they put faith in him, being treated with dignity and respect, which is why Peter belabors this point a little bit, which is why God gives them so many signs through the book of Acts. That it's all people. What they're then discussing after that point is to be a follower of Jesus, you must blank. We've lost the gospel when we believe that. The gospel of Jesus is gone if we say to follow Jesus, you must this. Because the beginning point is grace. The beginning point for us humanly is a sense of our need. Now, what does grace in action look like? Well, I'm so glad you asked. What a wonderful thing to discuss. It looks different culture to culture, but following Jesus has an effect in our life. Specifically, they talk about in this chapter, they talk about avoiding sexual immorality. But is that the gospel? No, 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 no. For those of you that are new, that's me. That's my version of yelling. And I repeat myself. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, will your life look different? Yes. Therefore, if you've been a follower of Christ for a long time and you're not experiencing life change, I hope that you're in conversation with trusted friends. I hope that you're praying. I hope that you're considering all of the commands that always follow the promise but the gospel of Jesus, this is actually the heart of the first council. While they were discussing circumcision, the heart of the first council is what's the good news? What changes everything? It's that because of the work of Christ, because of his sinless life, because of his death on the cross, then his resurrection, then his ascension, we are free. into real life. That's why James says twice, if you keep yourself from these, you do well, because that's not the gospel. So he doesn't say, if you avoid these things and guard their conscience and avoid sexual immorality, then you're saved. He says, guard one another's conscience, avoid immorality, and enjoy the promises of God. But there is no requirement The requirements have all been met by Jesus. When we believe for even half a second that there's a requirement anywhere near the initial coming to faith, we misunderstand the gospel of Jesus. This is where I want to back up and I want to talk more about Galatians 2 in Acts chapter 21 and Acts chapter 11. But the point of a sermon is not the history of the early church, though we're covering it in the book of Acts. The point of a sermon is not to unpack all that the New Testament means when it talks about sexual immorality, though I would like to talk about that. And it's mentioned in many of the other letters. 
One resource for you, again, is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the way they unpack the Ten Commandments. Specifically, in this case, the Seventh Commandment addresses that question if you'd like to research it. And the reason I'm alluding to it and not talking about it is the point of a sermon is to encourage and strengthen one another in what? Morality? No. Morality follows a good Sunday morning, which is encouraging one another that the grace of Jesus came before us and saved us, that we have the grace of Jesus today. It is empowering us to love God and neighbor, and we have the grace of Jesus in the future. That's the good news. That's what we sing about. That's why we pray and are encouraged by it. That's why hopefully we spend time talking with one another on a Sunday morning to encourage one another about the grace of Jesus Peter describes it this way, hearing the word of the gospel and believing. We're encouraging one another. In verse 24, James writes, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, we do need to clarify our terms. That's why I'm attempting to explain and summarize and define like they did in Acts chapter 15. What is the gospel? And then is there a human response to that? Of course. But is that the gospel? No. That's our response to the gospel. And then we guard one another's conscience and how we talk about all these things and discuss them and figure them out like the early church did. Oftentimes when I hear people talk about the book of Acts, they want to talk about the persecution that came from the surrounding governments and that happened. This is an example of the early church learning to do family with one another, learning to keep the gospel central learning how to encourage one another in their, in their current moment. And we are doing the same thing. We're singing to encourage our own hearts near one another. We're strengthening one another by literally sitting next to one another and praying and opening the word. And then we're considering as best we can as men and women, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in July of 2018 in Simsbury or Avon or Canton or wherever you're visiting from? That's the purpose of a Sunday morning, to glorify God, to encourage one another because of the gospel, which is that God loves you and likes you. Because of the work of Christ, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're reconciled to him and then freed into a life of life. Do you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you send us a sense this very moment of how you are strengthening our hearts in Jesus Christ this morning. As we continue just for a few minutes to sing, Lord, fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit, with the comfort of your love, with the comfort of our salvation, with the comfort that we have you as a guide. Jesus, we praise and thank you for living sinlessly because none of us are able to do that. We thank you for dying for us and receiving all of the wrath of God. And we thank you that because of that, we are in union with the Father. Bless us this morning, this afternoon, this week, this month, this year, with a sense of that grace. And then help us to follow. Amen.